Hey y'all, this is Mo. I just want to thank you for choosing to listen to Parenting is Political. There are over 700,000 podcasts out and active right now, today. So the fact that you're listening to this one, I don't think it's a coincidence, and I appreciate you being here. If you'd like to show your support for Parenting is Political, you can go to our website and sign up as a paid subscriber. There are monthly giving options as well as one-time donation options. Podcasts are free to listen to, but they aren't free to make. So I would appreciate any support that y'all could give to help me continue to make Parenting is Political. I hope y'all enjoy the episode. Bye! Hey, y'all. Hi. Welcome to Parenting is Political. Hi, hi, hi. I am Mo. I'm Jasmine. And together we make a podcast, which is what you're listening to. Yeah. (laughs) My pronouns are she, her, hers. Mine are they, them, theirs. We don't always say that when we're together on this podcast, but it's important. We don't. Yeah, it is important. Good call. Good call, babe. So what are we talking about? Well, we're back on that white supremacy culture shit. Yeah. We took a break to talk about mental health, which was, I hope that y'all listened to it, Um, but it was a detour from our little mini-series, but we're back. We back and we back. But listen, this, I don't care if we take detours. Me neither. Who told us we have to do it a certain way? Uh, No one. (laughs) <laughs> it was just us. <laughs> cool. So. What are we talking about this week, babe? We're talking about quantity over quality, which is a habit of white supremacy culture within organizations and structures. And what we've been doing through the white supremacy habits of white supremacy culture uh, is taking it from the institution systemic kind of conversation that this resource that uh, community uh, chain or workshop community yeah workshop is that what it's called I don't know community change know. workshop anyway okay. <laughs> um, that they developed and we are bringing it down into the interpersonal mm-hmm. um, you know community day to day life yeah in ways that are applicable that we can really start having concepts for these things okay. because yes they show up in organizations but they show up in organizations because people make up organizations and people make up families yes. and relationships and so yeah and it's really easy for white people in particular because we're the ones who struggle with this the most is to be like oh i'm not a white supremacist i don't i'm not overtly racist and then to lose like the nuance and the meaning behind what it means to be a participant in white supremacy culture. Mm. And so as we're breaking it down, a lot of the feedback that I've been receiving is, thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. Attention, This has like really helped me understand what it means whenever people have been calling me out on my whiteness. Right. So white, anti-black white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism all work together to ensure that it's confusing and that the behaviors and the cultural norms of those systems of domination, whether they're individual or in combination, um, are so mainstream and normalized that we don't even understand what we're doing when we do it. Yeah. And so particularly with quantity over quality, it's tricky because you go, what's wrong with the word quantity? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the phrase has some 
room for growth and like recalibration. Yes. Uh, but for what this tool is, it's important. So let's dive in. Quantity over quality within an organization that is rooted in white supremacy culture dictates that all resources of the organization are directed toward producing measurable goals. Yes. So the value would be in, have we reached these measurable goals? Can you prove it's valuable, yes. right? Yes. The other thing is that things can be measured that are more likely or more highly valued than things that cannot. For example, number of people attending a meeting, newsletter circulation, money spent are valued more than quality of relationship, democratic decision-making, ability to constructively deal with conflict. Mm, mm, mm. Within this tactic, there is little or no value attached to process if it can't be measured. There is an intense discomfort with emotion and feelings. (laughs) Oh, no. And there's no understanding that when there is conflict between content and process, process will prevail. For example, you might get through an agenda, but if you haven't paid attention to the people's need to be heard, the decisions made at the meeting are undermined or disregarded. So you're like, cool, that sounds like corporate, nonprofit, what does this have to do with parenting is political and me being a parent and me raising better white people? What does it have to do, Mo? It has to do because all of these things show up in our interpersonal relationships and in our... Uh, relationships with our young people. So, for example, we'll just start with number one. We'll bring it back from the boardroom to your home room. Okay. Did that work? No, it didn't work. (laughs) So the ways in which I see this playing out, particularly in spaces where young people are, is of course school. Yes, that's like the most obvious one that comes to mind. Standardized tests. Students have become the labor force. Uh, They don't know it yet. Mm Mm-mm. But we send them to school with the intention of learning how to take tests and to learn certain things and to fill different tracks within industry so that eventually we'll turn out a product that can fill our workforce. And we also start at a very young age of saying, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? What job do you want to have? Here's this job fair thing. Yeah, and so we use a lot of quantity over quality, whether it's through standardized testing, whether it's through the grades they make, whether it's through the achievements that they make inside their peer cohorts. Or how many assignments they got done in the 45-minute class period. Yeah, to demonstrate their <clears throat> their value mm-hmm. within, yeah. within our society, within our family, or mm-hmm. the value that they should hold internally. Yes, Yeah, and so you see kids with disabilities, you see kids who are not neurotypical, you see kids who don't have their basic needs met because they live in food deserts or don't get the rest they need or have unstable family life, really being um, put through this quantity over quality paradigm and coming out pretty torn up. Yeah. And we know that the students that fill up those populations typically are people of color, children of color, um, particularly like black girls. And then, of course, they experience the punitive measures and the messaging, the programming that says there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. You're not good enough uh, because you're not meeting these quantifiable standards. And so you have no value. Yeah. So we do that within school. And then we also do within family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We as parents will oftentimes pit siblings against each other and say, well, why haven't you cleaned up as many things as your sister has? 
Like, you have produced more in a shorter amount of time, so that's great. But you, who haven't produced as much in a shorter, or in that same amount of time, are under, like, we don't value you as much, and you should be contributing more. You should be doing more. Right. When, and this is what I love in our sibling group, is Tobias, our, one of our middle child, or children, ch- I was going to say childs, children, um, he loves to take his time and organize things really, really, really well. He doesn't get as much done as his other siblings, but he like really does take his time and it's a lot of quality over quantity. And before I started to unlearn these habits, I used to get really frustrated with Tobias. I'd be like, but you need to pick up the pace. We have a lot to get done. Your sisters are outpacing you. They're doing more work. Like, come on, like, let's get it done. And then when I was able to slow down enough to realize what he was doing, he was producing really quality work. He just wasn't doing it at the same pace as his siblings. You mean he wasn't like a factory worker? Yeah. He wasn't a robot. And now that I'm manufacturing it. Now that I've realized that, I know like, okay, I'm going to ask Tobias to do this. It's going to be done really well. It's just going to take, it's in a different time frame than, than what other people may be able to get it done. That's just a really like concrete example of what happens even in sibling groups, even in your house, as you start to value quantity over quality. Right. And so the other part of this that I think is really relevant for parents who are trying a different approach than what we've been taught by white supremacy capitalism and patriarchy around parenting is is the the part where uh there is deep discomfort with emotion and feelings yes and that's because emotion and feelings cannot be uh created as models Mm -hmm. they are organic and just very dependent on each person and it takes a long time. It's not something you can just process through, quantify, and move on. And oftentimes, feelings and emotions don't have a nice, neat wrapper mm-hmm. and the solvency that people want. Yeah. And so to be emotive in a work meeting means that they, people don't feel, uh, capitalism buzzword, productive. Mm-hmm. They don't get the product. And I think also when we apply the conversation to parenting and family dynamics, we often feel we don't have control when our children begin to express emotion and discomfort. Yeah. We're just like, can you reel it in? Because I'm trying to have a conversation with you, yeah. right? You, we care more about the end of the conversation and what they're taking away and sort of like a measurable deliverable of, mm-hmm. of the labor that we're doing together and less about the process of them being heard. Yeah. So it's like a mute point anyway because because they're not being heard, they're not, they don't give a fuck about what you're saying. <laughs> they're not going to do the thing that you're asking them to do. There's not going to be this collective change that happens be- because you didn't take the time to listen to their emotional needs. and, say, and, to, and the, Sometimes kids are super, super clear about what they want. They will literally say, mom, baba, dad, this is what I need right now. Right. And there's so much focus on the adult side of things to be like, well, that's a deviation from this thing that we're trying to get done or whatever else that you'll completely miss it. You'll completely go over it. And then the kid's not going to listen anyway. 
Yeah. So, I mean, like, it's, 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 it goes really hand in hand with this idea of sense of urgency that we talked about, right? Mm-hmm. Quantity. And competition. Yeah. So quantity over quality in and of itself producing more has a sense of urgency, right? You don't have time to slow down if you're trying to be the best and you're trying to produce the most and have the best numbers. There's mm-hmm. no room for you to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. Let's take time to check in with ourselves. How are we feeling? And that, that whole cultural norm is a part of settler colonialism. Mm, tell us more. Yeah, I mean, well, it's about, like, how many colonies can I have? (laughs) How can I spread out really large and take up a whole bunch of space Mm -hmm. but not have any real substance? And we see this all the time in some of the organizing work spaces that I do. People and organizations will spread out, but they won't go deep. Yeah. You know? And it really is about the depth and quality of a thing because... When the tumult happens and life happens, a tree or any kind of plant with shallow roots is going to get blown over. Totally. It's not going to be stable. Yeah. It's, it's not going to be able to thrive and rebound with the resources it needs. Yeah. Yeah. When, yeah. So it's sort of like this thin kind of relationship. It is. It's not substantive. It's not. But you think that because you did X amount of this, that it is the measurement, and so it's good enough. Mm-hmm. Whenever you hear people saying, I didn't need you to do 20 of those situations. I just needed one good one. Oof. How, how revolutionary would that be? I mean, I think in love and in interpersonal relationships, it, that's the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you and I have this, which I think gives us staying power as a couple, as a... Uh, you know, as a, a family, mm-hmm. is that we don't go, oh, we got, we had six dates this week, so mm-hmm. we must be doing well. We say, we had that one real good conversation sitting on the bathroom floor drinking wine. <laughs> <laughs> we totally did that the other night. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's that. And, and for me, as um, a person who is polyamorous which is a identity designation within the umbrella of non-monogamy um i i have often said this with other partners that i've had particularly partners who feel deeply threatened by how much proximity i have to you is they assume because you and i have this vast quantity of time together that all of its quality yeah and that all of it is equally as valuable and intentional. And because we spend this space together, I had an ex-girlfriend who lived in D.C. who saw me maybe once a month. And at the phase of life that you and I were in, when I would go see them, I would have more quality time with that person and feel more invigorated and connected to them yeah. that one time a month than I ever did with you for like months at a time with no break between like us. Yeah. Um, and, and there's something for me because of the way my sexuality and like romance and attachment is set up is that whenever I can be away from someone and have like these mo- smaller moments of time with them, the intention is so much more concentrated. The love and focus is so much more concentrated and it's deeply, it's got such a high quality. Totally. Um, and so I think too, we, we, to sort of broaden that out away from the non-monogamous community, we we do that all the time with our friends, mm-hmm. right? Like we, I have I I have to talk. I have friends that 
I talk to maybe three times a year. And when I talk to them, nothing changes, right? It it feels so still deeply attached, so personal and intentional. And if I were to use mainstream culture's measurement of if I'm really that person's friend based on how many times we talk Mm -hmm. a week, how often we hang out, you know, we wouldn't actually be friends. Right. Right. So it's also another way that white and white supremacy culture and patriarchy and capitalism, um, try to control and impact the, um, definition of how friendship, how connection, how family, how love, how, uh, being colleagues or peers, how it tries to define it in certain ways that are really not rooted in human organic connection. Right. Yeah. Those are all really great things to bring up. (laughs) I'm over here like lost in what you're saying that I wasn't thinking of the next thing to say. So now I'm like, Oh, "Oh, where do I go now? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you, but families also experience the pressure around like quantity over quality around how many children they have Mm -hmm. and how they quote unquote reproduce, which I honestly, I hate that phrase, but yeah, um, when people build (laughs) families, it's, Oh, you only have one kid. Yeah, like, the amount of shame that people get for having only one only kid... Only one child. ...is ridiculous. But then also, because the target always moves based yeah. on what the systems of domination need, it's also like, oh, you have four kids, you should stop. Yeah. You have too many. Oh, my God, yeah. But it's always about control, right? Yeah. It's not about the process. No one ever says, I wonder why you have four kids. How, what did mm-hmm. that look like for you? How did you make that decision? Mm-hmm. What, right? It's just... Yeah. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I I just, like, so much of this is so, I'm just, I'm, I was hesitant at first because I didn't know what all we were going to talk about when we started this one. But now as, like, I'm sitting in it, I'm like, all this makes a lot of sense. And especially as someone who um, is non-neurotypical. Yeah. And doesn't process information the same way as some of my peers. um, I'm really grateful to have a partner who recognizes uh, quality over quantity yeah. and, and allows space for process because that's the antidote to this is process and feelings and emotions and making space for those things. And um, anytime that we don't, anytime that we say these things have to be done by this amount of time and we need X amount, um, anybody who is outside of the, any of those constraints. Any of the constraints will immediately fall behind. Right. Um, which is how our capitalistic society is set up. That's the purpose of it. Is right. like only the strong ones will survive. Strong and being in quotes. Well, and of course, you know, there's the other thing to take into consideration is that growing up in a society that is deeply, deeply violent means that oftentimes, particularly with queer people of color obviously still centering black people always, as, I, always, as always. I have done every podcast. I know every single um, time. Every episode. Um, that it hasn't been safe to experience emotions and there has been so much external environmental discomfort that having internal to yourself or internal to your interpersonal relationships feels like too much. Yeah. And so we 
those of us who have been pushed to the margins have to create practices where we develop resiliency, where we reclaim process, Mm -hmm. where we allow ourselves to evaluate what we think is quality over quantity Mm -hmm. and and, and also make space for differing definitions of what quality is because some of us enter in the conversation as people who are deeply... uh, loyal to capitalism and capitalism has like all kinds of conflated ideas about quality that's actually not quality at all (laughs) um and so i would say that it's not even necessarily about the word quality as i said earlier this the this phrase could use a reframe Mm -hmm. but just more of of humanity yeah of authenticity of things like that are actually real yeah So one of the ways to combat, I guess, or push back against this idea of you have to produce more or things have to be like manufactured or whatever is um, to develop like value statements, Mm -hmm. which express ways in which you want to get things done. So and how we will cooperate and in doing that in a way that's um, it's like a living type of thing. So something that's malleable, you can change as you grow as people. Right, it's and not it's, a model, it's a living document. Yeah, and it's looking for ways within your value systems um, that aren't quote-unquote measurable goals. It's There's like a little bit of ambiguity in them. Mm-hmm. So instead of, so our example that we like to do in our family at the beginning of a new season or beginning of a new year or whatever, we sit down as a collective and we ask the kids and we ask each other, what are some like values as a family that we want to experience over the course of these next several months mm-hmm. or as a year? Um, and so instead of and it being shout a- out to Lisa, that is um, my beautiful sponsor, Lisa, who yes. has helped me work my uh, recovery and sobriety around codependency. She tasked me with that yeah. whenever I got through my step work. And I was really at the place where I was like, what What the fuck do I do now? Like, who am I? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been so consumed with just trying to figure out this codependency thing. She said, really sit down and figure out a family mission statement. And that sounds like some, you know, like inspirational bullshit, but it's real. <laughs> yeah. And then work through your values mm-hmm. and what you plan on doing with your life as a family and how totally. people can participate. And then allow people the room to talk about how they want to contribute. And then be flexible to allow it to change as the needs of your ecosystem change. Yeah. So we did that. So we did. So instead of, like, the example here of pushing away from measurable goals would would be, like, instead of saying in our value statement, we want to go on four road trips this year. Instead of that being a super measured thing that would be pass-fail, right? Mm -hmm. It was, we would like to go on more adventures together as a family. And then we looked at, we brainstormed ways to have adventure. Yeah. And what different ways that could look like. I mean, an adventure literally could be going to the grocery store <laughs> and put it, like picking out a playlist together before we get in the car. And our adventure is like singing at the top of our lungs on the way to the grocery store. That right. could also be that time we took a road trip spontaneously across half the United States. Oh, yeah. Like, because it happened. Because <laughs> it happened. Um, yeah. And so what that does is it allows you to develop a culture that's not defined by the external systems of, of violence mm-hmm. and domination, right? Yeah. It, it, and it helps you practice being present with one another. Another thing that's really important is if you have to have difficult conversations with the young people in your life, ask them at the end of this conversation, what would you like to 
be able to say or how how will I know you feel heard Mm -hmm. and so that if you do need a measure if you do need like guideposts for how you get through that moment um, whether it's a moment of discipline and child rearing or you know some other kind of conversation around transition or just family stuff that they feel as though they have input and they get to inform the process yeah yeah because if they're not invested in it and they don't feel like they've been heard they're checking out yeah the other thing is practicing allowing the different particularly if you have a sibling group Mm -hmm. um, allowing each person to talk about what labor they want to contribute in the way that they can yeah and not measuring everyone else's uh input by and contribution by the most like by the highest performer yeah and and also supporting the higher performing siblings, you know, you know the the kids who can get stuff a lot of stuff done or are much better at like auditory um, direction following, allow them to also practice what the people who typically in our society don't have value mm-hmm. um, or or looked at like the slow ones or however people um, conceptualize it, try and put them on their playing field, and I mean that to say like regularly we will assign because Tobias is the youngest Mm -hmm. and he has some learning delays around things. Mm -hmm. His sisters are super sharp and are, they move at a pace that is just not reasonable for him. We will shift, we will power shift in his favor and say that he is the one that's giving the directions for the team whenever they have a task and that the girls have to figure (laughs) out how to cooperate (laughs) with him on his terms. Yeah. And so just practicing building this culture of we're not going to move faster than the the slowest person uh, in our community. And I think this also has helped us build conversations, build into conversations and um, develop mindful practices around people who have physical disabilities Mm -hmm. and invisible disabilities because it helps us reorient what we find valuable as far as community contribution. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my favorite one of my favorite things that we do in our family is making sure that we're going at the pace of the person who either has the least power in the situation or has the least ability yeah. or who just um, is even the, sometimes just the youngest because sometimes that is just one of the factors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, I was going to say something and I forgot what it was. Maybe it'll come back to me. It's all coming back. You know, that Celine Dion song? I don't know that song. No. Is that a Celine Dion song? Or Celine Dion? Or is it a Roxette song? I don't... I couldn't tell oh, you. Oh, shit. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I don't know. So, yeah. yeah. That's quantity over quality. Mm-hmm. And... I just really hope that if anyone is listening, that the main thing... Are you getting sick? Oh, no. No. The main thing that they take away... Is really um, get curious about when you feel deep discomfort around emotions and feelings in process. Yeah. Because when you start to feel that there are just so many feelings, it's just so much, that's usually telling you that there's something happening that makes you want to just get through it, to have a measurable Okay, well, what did we get from this conversation? Mm-hmm. What did I take away from it? Yeah. 
um, instead of being present and experiencing this constructive experience. Also get curious about like what even your definition is of productive or productivity, right? Because like capitalist society measures productivity by the amount of stuff you can get done in the least amount of time, right? So maybe flip that on its head, like start to be curious around the ways in which you implement that in your interpersonal relationships. And also like if you are in community with young people, how you're demonstrating that to them. Yeah. Figure out as a family, what ways you're choosing to spread out and go wide instead of deep. Yeah. And in some ways, some practical ways, it could mean reevaluating your space that you're using as a family and going, oh, shit, we have this giant-ass house with all this giant stuff, and we don't use the majority of this stuff, right? We experience that that luxurious call of consumerism, so we just want more and more stuff, but why don't we just get a few things that are quality? Yeah. And and be intentional there. Yeah, that that could be a way that you resist white supremacy culture in your family. True, because it's also it also seems to correlate pretty closely. Whenever the more stuff we have, the less amount of time we spend with each other. Well, yeah, this isn't yeah. always true. No, but I'm just yeah, saying sure. that. But it's yeah. so so. This is all rooted in consumption. Yeah. Right. The more you have, the more you can consume, and then you consume more, and then you have to make more, and yeah. um, and waste, of course. Yeah disposability so i think it you know i think that there's i always rag on the like tiny house movement people and the minimalist and i'm like shut up i like my drapes i'm gonna keep them yeah uh but But i I I think you know i think that that's one way that people are people are resisting a culture even if they don't call it that true i remember the thing i was gonna say what was it finally came back to me I was sitting here thinking that there must be some folks, or maybe it's just in my head because of all the things I heard growing up, that think that our house is, like, chaos and that the children, like, run everything. Do you ever, like, stop and think about that? Because mm, it's, mm-hmm. that's, like, not actually, like, we're, whenever we're having these conversations, it's not in, like, the absence of structure, right? Like, it's not in the absence of, like, truly guiding our younger pe- people, I just often hear that person in the back of my head that's, like, from high school, I'm sure, that's, like, if you aren't the person in charge and your family making all the decisions for everybody, then you're letting the children run things. And, like, that's so awful and terrible. And oftentimes <laughs> in these conversations that were happening, that will that little person pops back up in my head and I have to be like, what? That's so, like, I don't know. That's so, like, bizarre to me that I was ever taught that because... The kids, like, the kids in our lives and in our home and anywhere just have so much value. And they have so much to give and so much resiliency. And to squash that because you're afraid of losing your power as a parent. Mm -hmm. And you don't think that discipline can happen without punitive measures. It's just, like, it's so sad because you lose so much of that deep quality of a relationship with your kid whenever you're just trying to be, like quote-unquote, the disciplinarian through punitive measures so that you can get the most done in the family. It's just like, man, that just, it was a random thought that I had that escaped me, but then I remembered. Your family doesn't have to be productive. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Your family life doesn't have to be quantifiably productive. It really doesn't. But what if we just abandon all of this 
analysis and praxis that we have, and we just start training our family as American Ninja Warriors, <laughs> and we become family a family that only ever collects awards. <laughs> and at the end of our life, we say, we have over 147 awards as a family, so we must have done it right. Uh, our kids would honestly love that. They've been asking me to do that They want to be time. American Ninja they Warriors. They do. I got them hooked on that junior version of it, and now... They're, like, asking me to sell their toys so they can build obstacle courses in our backyard. I wish they would American Ninja Warrior me some independent wealth. <laughs> exactly. Can, can you... How get... much do kids get whenever they win those things? I don't know. Maybe we're doing this all wrong. Oh, and our God. children are a commodity that we can just, like... Let's train them. <laughs> train them, and they can be our workforce. Anyway... That's it, y'all. That is. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, If you have any questions about our podcast or about this episode or for us in general, you can reach out and email me at contact or yeah, contact at parentingispolitical.org. You can also DM us on our Instagram handle, which is at parentingispolitical. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time. Bye. Bye.